When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, I'm joined by a special guest to talk about a cabinet member that you may or may not know and that our guests may or may not know. Today, I'm joined by Nick Amell, who is the host of the Tennis Podcast. Nick, thank you so much for joining us for the special series. Jerry, I am thrilled to be here, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about some guy that I probably don't know much about today. (laughs) we're getting into the space of cabinet members that they're not quite as well known. So Mm -hmm. thank you for being willing to join in the fray because of course, Nick, like most of our guests does not know who we're going to be talking about. But before we reveal to him who we're going to be talking about, I want to give Nick a chance to talk about tennis podcasts. If you haven't listened to tennis podcasts yet, I've been a guest on that podcast a couple of times, had great fun, but I'm going to give Nick a moment to tell you about his podcast and where you can find him. Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. So Tennis Podcast is all about tennis, tennis shoes, tennis rackets, tennis balls. I'm just kidding. Uh, It's actually about top 10-ish lists. Uh, And Jerry, like he said, he's been on twice. And it's. I think it's fitting that I'm on your Seat at the Table series here because I don't know who we're talking about today, much like when you came on my show, you didn't know the topic you'd be guessing. So the way it works is me and uh, my guest for that week, come on, one of us has a top 10 list on anything, could be the highest grossing movies, could be the best selling books, stuff like that. The other person doesn't know what the list is ahead of time, they've had no chance to prepare, and they're going to guess items 1 through 10 on the list. Uh, Jerry's come on twice to do president episodes. He brought a list on the top 10 wealthiest presidents. I did a list for him on the top 10 presidential scandals. Uh, In the past, we've also done episodes on the heaviest presidents, the uh, best presidents, the worst presidents, the smartest. Uh, We have a lot of presidential episodes, and we love doing history-themed episodes as well. We got about 200 episodes and counting of Tennis Podcast. You can find us on any podcast platform. Just search for Tennis Podcast or go to TennisPod.com. And I will tell you, it is in my regular rotation. So if it's not in yours already, I highly recommend checking out Tennis Podcast. It is available anywhere fine podcasts can be found. And around the release of this episode, I'll be sharing information on my social media. It will also be in the episode information for this episode. So please check it out. Yes, please check it out. I beg of you. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you. Podcasters Jerry. beg and plead. Just check out our podcast. <laughs> we got to stick together, Jerry. <laughs> so Nick, are you mm-hmm. ready to learn who we're going to be talking about today? I'm on the edge of my seat. So our cabinet member today is John Breckenridge. Yes. Yes. Sorry. I was looking through the cabinet members that you haven't covered yet. And it was John Breckenridge and Caesar Augustus. Uh, what's his last name? Caesar Rodney. Augustus Rodney. Those were the two I wanted to cover. So I'm glad I got one of them. You did. And yep. John Breckenridge is quite an interesting character. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's do it. So as always, start at the beginning. Let's talk about his family. The Breckenridge family can be traced back to Ayrshire, Scotland, but it is believed that they migrated over to Ulster in Ireland in the late 17th century. So he comes from that Scots-Irish background. Mm-hmm. Our Breckenridge's grandfather, Alexander Breckenridge, crossed the Atlantic around 1728 and settled first in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, in the eastern portion of the state, before moving to Augusta County in northern Virginia in 1740. Now. Our Breckenridge's father, Robert, remained in that area and had two children by his first wife before she passed away. Hmm. Then, after he remarried Latisse Preston of the prominent Preston family, they had six children together. Our John Breckenridge was born in Augusta County, Virginia on December 2nd, 1760. He was the second of Robert and Latisse's children. Sorry, Jerry, I got to interrupt real quick. Her name's lettuce, like the vegetable? <laughs> yes. Uh, Spelled okay. almost the same way. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, that has to be an homage to lettuce, right? From her parents? I mean, who doesn't love lettuce? I lo- yeah. Hey, I love lettuce. It's just I never heard yeah. someone named it, but <laughs> I'm, I'm cool with it. I support it. Yes. And all props to lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> So his father, Robert, had served in Augusta County as undersheriff, and then he moved up to sheriff. Then he served as justice of the peace. But shortly after John's birth, the family moved to Botetote County. In addition to farming, Robert and their new home served as a constable and a justice of the peace, along with serving in the local militia. So he was very involved in local public service. Mm Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for the family, Robert passed away in 1773 when John was 12 years old. Now, from this, John inherited from his father 300 acres, one enslaved individual, and was made co-owner of another enslaved individual. Hmm. And so this tells us, yet again, we're talking about a cabinet member who did enslave other individuals. And of course, we're going to talk about this when we get towards the end of this episode. Yeah, I I did a little skimming on this guy just briefly on his Wikipedia page earlier. And I know that slavery is, we're not done with slavery when it comes to this guy. Oh, we have, we have some things to talk about. (laughs) Excellent. Yes. So while it's known that John received a private education in his youth, as was befitting a young man in a Virginia planter family, Mm-hmm. It's not known exactly where he might have been educated. One possibility that was thrown out was Augusta Academy, which was an institution that later became known as Washington and Lee University. But we don't have any 
solid confirmation on that. But his father's death meant that John, even as a teenager, would have to step up and help support the family. Now, as I'm sure any teenager would love to do, the way John made money for the family was apparently by selling brandy, whiskey, and hemp. Uh, But who hasn't? It's kind of a rite of passage for teenagers, isn't it? I know, right? It is that... (laughs) That teenage dream job. <laughs> yeah. But I think it, it speaks to, because this is going to be what, like the late 1700s-ish, right? Yes. It's just a different time as far as, you know, kids working young and what they're working with and doing. It's just completely different. But it is still funny to think about in the modern times, you know, a 14, or I think you said he was 12 when his father died, a 12-year-old uh, boy, like on the street corner selling <laughs> that stuff. Get a shot of brandy. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of a lemonade stand, he's got a brandy stand. Yeah. I mean, just like kids do, you know, those crazy kids. (laughs) Well, and with so many figures on the series, we don't really have many details about their Mm -hmm. development years because it wasn't seen as a separate time like we think of nowadays. And so it was just, well, they really didn't do anything until they got to be adults. You know, they're they're yeah. working towards that. But in his case, we do get these details because he was selling brandy at he his was working so yeah. Yeah. And I remember talking to you about this on my show the last time you were on, which is, you know, almost all of human history, ninety nine percent of human history, anything we know is based on paper records being passed yeah. down for years or decades or centuries or millennia. And it's just It's impressive that we know as much as we do about history when you think about it. Exactly. Exactly. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Well, and so... He's in a tough place. His family's in a tough place. Mm-hmm. And so his uncle, William Preston, actually stepped up and taught him surveying. And that's a profession. You know, George Washington was a surveyor. It was mm-hmm. one of those things that was seen as a way to really be able to make your way in the world. And so William Preston stepped up. He taught him surveying so that he could have a skill that he could lean on in order to support himself in the future. But John had other ambitions. Ones that he would have to pursue even in the midst of war, because in 1775, Mm -hmm. when John was only 14, the Revolutionary War began. And when the war began, Breckenridge was working as a clerk at the Botetote County Land Office. And this was a job that he held from 1774 until 1779. Now, his uncle that we mentioned, William Preston, Mm -hmm. tried to get John to attend private school. But the young Breckenridge felt that he had to attend to his responsibilities to his family. He had to try and make some money to help support his family. That's a tough position for a teenager to be in. Exactly. I mean, just the amount of pressure that 
he would be under knowing that he was helping to support his family. Right. And Preston understood that, and he actually worked to secure Breckenridge a position as deputy surveyor of Montgomery County. But he wouldn't be in that position for long, because later that year, Breckenridge was finally able to return to his education with an enrollment in William & Mary College in Williamsburg. And this was a place that many young men from Virginia Planner families ended up. And so Breckenridge ended up at William & Mary. But this education would be a short one because the college was forced to close in 1781. There's this little matter about a British military force invading Virginia that kind of disrupted things for a bit. An invasion can do that, can disrupt things for a bit. It can do that, just a little bit. (laughs) But in this time, even though it was a brief time, Breckenridge was influenced by the Reverend James Madison who was not the same James Madison as the future president, Uh, the president that we've been talking about quite a bit on the podcast. He was influenced by Reverend Madison as well as George Wythe, who had been Thomas Jefferson's mentor in his early days. Mm -hmm. Now, though some historians claim that Breckenridge actively served in the militia during the war, other historians were unable to find any records of him having served. Now, looking at this, if he had any service at all, it was likely to have been at the tail end of the war, just based on his age, and it would have likely been in some minor campaigns. It wasn't anything mm-hmm. major. He wasn't a war hero. He was not a war hero. You know, we've we've had quite a few folks in this series that were involved actively in military service in the war. Breckenridge was not one of them, but he was engaged in other service. Because in 1780, the 20-year-old Breckenridge was chosen by the voters of Botetoke County to represent them in the Virginia House of Delegates. Is it? That seems young, right? That's pretty young. Even for the time, right? Even for that time. Yeah. And that's the thing. It was interesting because there are claims that the House of Delegates refused to seat him twice because of his age. Okay. And again, haven't been able to confirm this, but you know there are those rumors out there. But according to this, the same claim, the voters of Botetoke County kept sending Breckenridge back until he was finally seated. But it's not backed up by any contemporary sources, so we can't really confirm that. But yes, this was unusual for the time. Typically, mm-hmm. folks who were sent more mature, at least in their mid-20s. Right. It's, you know, when I was 20, I was sleeping until 1 p.m. in the afternoon and eating ramen noodles for all three meals a day. And this guy is being like destined by his community to be in the House of Representatives. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a different different world. And imagine having to roll out at 1 p.m. and go to a committee hearing. (laughs) Yuck. No. I wouldn't want no. to do that when I'm 50, much less 20. <laughs> exactly. No. Who wants that? But he did end up in the House of Delegates. He was in Richmond, Virginia, when the House convened on May 7th, 1781. But he and his legislative colleagues would soon flee west as British forces marched on Richmond. So, yes, this is 
for those who are familiar with this time period. And at this point, Jefferson was at the end of his tenure as governor. Mm -hmm. He would be in this fleeing from Richmond as the British forces were coming. Mm -hmm. Breckenridge would participate in legislative business conducted in Charlottesville starting on May 28th until on June 4th, word came that British forces were on their way to Charlottesville. So Breckenridge and his colleagues hit the road again. They were finally able to finish their business in Staunton, and Breckenridge went to his mother's home until the House of Delegates reconvened in November. Now, at this point, with the Battle of Yorktown ending, it seemed that Breckenridge and the nation could start thinking about their future. Right. Now, for John's half-brothers, Andrew and Robert, so his father had a wife before John's, yeah. And so his half-brothers decided that their future lay further west. The two moved to Kentucky in 1781. John's brother, William, would join them there in 1783, but John would remain for the time being in Virginia. But the family's financial troubles kept John from returning to his studies at William & Mary immediately after the war. Instead, he had to take a year to work as a surveyor in 1782 in order to earn money. So he fell back on that previous career, dropped out of politics for a bit. But I think you said that's pretty good money for the time, right? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And especially it was big business because you had so much land speculation going on that everybody was wanting to survey these lands, trying to figure out exactly what land they could claim. So it was big business at the time. Yeah. But finally, in 1783, it seemed like he had earned enough that he was able to rejoin the Virginia House of Delegates. So he's able to get back to politics. Now, while representing Botetote County in the legislature, Breckenridge also resumed his studies at William & Mary, alternating between attending classes and participating in legislative sessions. He's a part-time student and a part-time State legislator, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. God, that's just wild to think about. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, this is an extreme example, uh, but it's like if Joe Biden today made an announcement and was like, I think I'm going to go back to school and, (laughs) you know, try to become a nurse or something or try to get an IT degree. Uh, But I'm going to still be president. Um, I know Breckenridge wasn't president, but I'm just making the point that, like, usually these are full-time commitments, but not, not in this case. Not at that point. But I'm also picturing like a Rodney Dangerfield, the back to school (laughs) movie that he had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to picture there are some hilarious hijinks that happened trying to transition from, oh, I'm in the legislature. Oh, hold on. I've got to get to that lecture. (laughs) And, you know, he's he's walking into like a class and he's wearing like his whatever he wears to uh, legislature and then opposite and it's just like he looks at the camera and like shakes his head as the sitcom <laughs> ending music comes on it's like there's some real sitcom potential in a breckenridge show we can just call it breckenridge breckenridge <laughs> yeah it, it's a it, the name speaks for itself coming this fall on whatever <laughs> network unfortunately burning the candle at both ends he didn't have time to campaign for his re-election in 1784 he couldn't actually work that in yeah and he lost so he lost his seat in the House of Delegates. Can can I? Sorry, we don't spend a lot of time on this, but just a sidebar: How does what does campaigning look like for one in the seventeen eighties? 
So it's interesting at that time, and especially considering like the legislative districts and the small amount of people who were voters, Mm -hmm. it was very personal. You had to go and actually talk to individuals and try and get their votes. And especially you wanted certain key local leaders on your side because they in turn would be able to influence others too. Right. Exactly. And at that point, Ballots weren't necessarily secret. It was more, okay, well, we've got this one ballot that is for this person. This ballot is for another person. We're going to see which ballot you pick up and put in. Okay. So it became very much you really had to work those personal connections. But it seems like Breckenridge at this point just wasn't able to do that. He left it to others. Mm -hmm. They didn't do it well. And he ended up losing. Yeah, he lost. Sounds exhausting, making all those personal connections. It's like a door-to-door salesman, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. That's a lot of work for not much reward. Exactly. Well, and and especially at the time, and we covered this in the James Madison episode, typically election day was a booze fest. (laughs) The candidates were supposed to buy all this booze for the voters and get them boozed up and then go and vote. Mm-hmm. And James Madison learned the hard way because he was like, "Well, this doesn't really seem right. You know, we're we're basically buying people off with booze to vote for me. That doesn't seem democratic." And he tried mm-hmm. that once, and he lost handedly. And lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just give him the booze. So yeah, someone someone's like James Madison. Someone called the fun police on James Madison, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me that humans even like got organized enough to to do like nationwide voting at this period, but they did it. But yeah, if if booze is what the people want in order to secure the vote, I mean, I think you got to do it because you're dealing with a largely, at least relative to today, an uneducated uh, voting base. Right. I I have to assume that the voting public was not super well versed on the political topics at hand. Not that we're great at that these days either, but at least the information is more widely available than it was then. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and in this case, you know, most of the voters would have been landowners. So Mm -hmm. they may have been a little more than the average person at the time. But at the same time, again, Information took longer to exchange. It, yep. We didn't have quite as much information at our disposal. So it really depend on things like those personal connections. And ultimately, you know, who's the candidate that you want to have a beer with? And right. also, who's supplying the beer? Exactly. Yeah, it really <laughs> is that simple sometimes. Yeah. And so whatever the case may be. In this case, Breckenridge just did not get there. Mm -hmm. Even worse, his finances were strained again, and he had to pause his studies at William & Mary in the spring of 1784. So he's struggling not only politically, but also in terms of his education. Yeah. But finally, Breckenridge got a boost when the voters of Montgomery County, which was, um, he had had a position there earlier, the voters of Montgomery County decided if the voters of Botetourt County didn't want him, they'd take him. 
So they elected him to the Virginia House of Delegates to represent them. Uh, this guy just kind of fell into that, huh? Yeah. I mean, he just happened, you know, this is like a, you know, just locking into, okay, well, here's this other county that wants me. It's like a good, it's a good twist for that sitcom. If, if that ever <laughs> exactly. Could be, right? It's like a whole episode. <laughs> that final twist at the end of the episode. Okay. You think <laughs> everything's going bad and then out of the blue, here we go. Things are good again. Yeah. And then it's to be continued for the next week. Exactly. And during this time in the legislature, he would serve on various committees, including those for the courts of justice, investigation of the land offices, propositions and grievances, and religion. And in the work on the latter committee, the religion committee, he partnered with fellow state delegate James Madison, and in this case, yes, it is the future president, James Mm -hmm. Madison, to help pass a religious liberty bill that Thomas Jefferson had initially proposed years earlier. And we discussed that in more detail in the Madison episode, so refer folks back to that. But he's helping and getting these connections to some going to be pretty prominent folks. Mm -hmm. Right. But not one to sit around twiddling his thumbs. When he wasn't doing work in the state legislature, Breckenridge was studying the law. And in 1785, he was admitted to the bar and started a law practice in Charlottesville. So this guy does not know. It's like he is a workaholic. He's burning the candle. And you can see how his childhood kind of set him up for that, right? He, yeah. He didn't try. There's like a saying for it that's not coming to me. But basically, um, he couldn't sit still. He was always working toward the next thing, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and you really do have to wonder with his father dying when he was so young and having to help support the family, how much that contributed to it. Yeah, I think a lot. Absolutely. And at this point, he really did need a steady income because on June 28, 1785, John Breckenridge and Mary Hopkins Cabell, who was also known as Polly, were wed. So now he's starting a family. And their first child, a daughter named Letitia Preston Breckenridge, was born the next year. Between 1786 and 1806, the couple would have nine children total. God. I know. (laughs) Sorry. I I mean, I know that's like normal for the time, but just as a father of two now, seven more of them. Nope. (laughs) I would uh, leave leave for a gallon of milk and then never come home. (laughs) Your secret safe with us. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed that his daughter was named, I think, Letitia. Yes. Right? Very close to lettuce. Close to lettuce. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to continue that in the family, but (laughs) changing it a little bit. Yeah. And so John's marriage to Polly brought him possession of a 400-acre plantation known as the Gleb in Albemarle County. But unfortunately for Breckenridge, and again, like Breckenridge in his career and in his life, you see these ebbs and flows. So here we go. We have kind of a an ebb here. Mm-hmm. Plantation operations at the Gleb did not bring in much income. And though he earned more from his law practice, it was also time consuming and arduous work. So, you know, he's at this place, he's trying to figure out exactly what he's going to do moving forward and really trying to think through what's sustainable for him. 
But mm-hmm. also there's so much going on in the nation as a whole because we've also got the U.S. Constitution coming up. This is 1787. There's starting to be debates about the Constitution. And when it was proposed, when the Constitution was put forward, Breckinridge was mostly in favor of it, but he didn't seek election to the Virginia Ratification Convention. Instead, he was really focused on he's got to get things together for him and his family. And so in 1788, Breckinridge decided that he wanted to follow his family to Kentucky. And the next year, he traveled there to look at land. So this is a major deal. And you think about how big a move can be, and especially like from state to state, even now. But this is a time where roads are abysmal, where everything is just so much more difficult. Communication is, it takes weeks, months to get communication over. He's trying to plan a move for his family across the mountains to Kentucky. Yeah. That's a big move. And he's got nine kids to lug around too. And exactly. Sure he sent a letter or something like that to his family in Kentucky saying, hey, I'm moving to Kentucky. And by the time they actually received and read that letter, he's probably already left with his family heading there. And then, you know, no GPS, no map. I mean, maybe a map, no. but no GPS. So finding his family there, it's just, yeah, it's all over. I could talk about that sort of stuff all day, but I will. <laughs> I'll stop there before I go down a rabbit hole. Well, and and luckily, it seems like more than other stories that I've heard, you know, Breckenridge was kind of meticulous about it. So he went ahead and went there first. And luckily, having folks on the ground, it helped things a bit. But he took a little time. In 1790, he finally made his land purchase. Mm-hmm. And that year he bought 600 acres of land along the North Elkhorn Creek, which is close to modern day Lexington, Kentucky. Still didn't move there. He just bought the land. Oh. A couple of years later, he purchased an additional thousand acres of adjacent land to add to his holdings. And apparently by 1793, he was up to 30,000 acres of land in Kentucky. What do you need all that land for? Well, apparently that was the point where he was like, okay, this is enough. We can actually move. 30,000 acres? Him and his family needed 30,000 acres, apparently. <laughs> wow. And uh, he's like, okay, I guess I'll settle. And we'll, now we can move at the 30,000 acres. I really wanted 60, but running out of time here. You know, life's <laughs> pretty short in these days. So it's like, we don't got time to waste buying the perfect amount of land. It may be cramped for <laughs> me, my wife, nine kids, and all the slaves we're going to bring with us. Yeah, yeah, and and he did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it may be cramped, but I think we'll make 30,000 acres do. We'll make do. <laughs> you know, you think about people in that you know, 600 square foot apartment. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, and it's not like even back in these days, it's not like he was building a house that would, that would fill even one one hundredth of that acreage. So it's just a bunch of, bunch of land that he's going to need people to take care of. Yeah. But he decided that's it. So he went ahead and he was ready to move his family, ready to get things going. There's just one problem. He had been elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Oh, whoops. Small problem. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and <laughs> and you have to wonder, you know, th- this is we talked about first world problems. Oh well, yeah. either I'm going to move to my thirty thousand acres, <laughs> or I'm going to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. Oh, this yeah, is tough. And if and if it doesn't work out, I guess I'll stick with my lawyer practice. <laughs> and, exactly. You know, like, and if that doesn't work out, I guess I'll go back to surveying. So, I mean, he, he set himself up pretty good here. Yeah. And so he decided because he was really focused on that move. He resigned his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives before even taking it up. So it's like, mm. thanks, but no thanks. And in March 1793, he, his family and 25 people that they enslaved set off from Virginia bound for Kentucky. They arrived in April, and Breckenridge would dub their new home Cavill's Dale. And that was his wife's family's name. So interesting that he chose that. Okay, I was going to ask, yeah. So while much of the land was occupied by farmers leasing the land, and they had leases that extended for a pretty good bit, he still had to wait for those to... And he did start with 20 acres and had rye and wheat planted by the enslaved workers. Ultimately, he would expand his plantation operations to grow barley, corn, hay, hemp, and grass seed. He also had an orchard and bred thoroughbred horses. Hmm. Breckenridge would continue to practice law in addition to continuing his land speculation. Now he's got a full plate. Oh, yes. Again, this is a guy that. You know, you he doesn't know any other way. He doesn't know any other way. Let's just keep on making money. Now, though his operations were mostly successful, like with most farmers and planters in the West, Breckenridge wanted access to larger markets through the Mississippi River system. And in August 1793, he became a charter member and chairman of the Democratic Society of Kentucky, which lobbied the federal government to secure access to the Mississippi. So at this point, the Louisiana colony was, and that extended, that's basically the west side of the Mississippi River, was controlled by Spain. And so they controlled the river. Mm, Right. And so folks in the west, they're like, we really need this in order to be able to expand our markets. Breckenridge is a part of that movement. And he put his pen to the effort as well. He authored a pamphlet on the matter. He was also willing to put his money where his mouth was, and he funded an effort proposed by French minister to the U.S., Edmond Charles Genet, to launch a military operation against Spain. Wow. So, yeah, this was a thing that happened in the West at those times. You know, you had these filibustering expeditions that were like, well, if the Spanish won't give us control of the Mississippi, we'll just take it. We'll just take it, yeah. And it's interesting that, uh, I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but like he could launch a military effort from his position of power or relative power, right? Like he wasn't, he wasn't a president. He wasn't a governor. Um, So yeah, again, just different time, I guess. Yeah. Well, and it really speaks to, you know, we think of local leaders and we think of it in the context of our large population. The population was not that large at the time in terms of true in terms of white settlers. And so you only had a limited amount of folks in the West. The leaders, they had larger prominence. 
And you also had these international intrigues going on because this was the French minister, the the official representative from the French government at the time, who was trying to incite these filibustering expeditions against Spain because at that time, France and Spain were opposed. And so there's just so much going on. It's, you know, in the modern context, we can't begin to fathom, but this no. was... This was a thing that happened in those days. Yeah, yeah. Now, this plot didn't go anywhere because Genet was recalled by his government at the behest of the Washington administration. And yes, we covered that in the Washington narrative. So check that out. But it didn't really go anywhere. But it really speaks to like Breckenridge. This is a cause that he's getting behind. Yeah. And. Like other Westerners, Breckenridge was growing increasingly frustrated with the federal government because it seemed like they just either couldn't or wouldn't do anything to help folks in the West to meet their needs. Right. So, and and it, sometimes it seemed like they were actively going against their needs, going against what what they needed in order to succeed. That doesn't sound like the federal government I know, Jerry. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Never happened. Mm-mm. But yeah, and, and so there's this increasing frustration. Breckridge is a part of that. But you also have that, you know, he's really trying to make things happen. And so in mid-1795, Breckenridge got involved with a committee to raise funds for a road through the Cumberland Gap, which it was hoped would help to make it easier to transport goods to Virginia for sale. So again, looking at increasing the markets. Now, when the road was completed in late 1796, it was pretty rough. And apparently the toll collector seemed like he was taking some of the money from the tolls and just going ahead and putting it into his own pocket rather than actually maintaining the road. Oh, that would never happen. But also, that just sounds like a terrible job because you're the toll collector, which is a physical person standing at a physical spot in the road waiting for the toll. And, you know, I have to imagine it wouldn't be that hard to, you know, get hurt or threatened or something from someone that doesn't want to pay the toll. So that's kind of a dangerous position to be in, I think. Yeah. So kind of understand why he felt like he needed to take a little off the top, but apparently... Yeah. He just took everything. <laughs> oh, can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Even though this wasn't quite as successful of a venture, it still, it indicates, you know, Breckenridge is definitely somebody who's active. He's wanting to make things happen. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't just concerned with commerce and trade. Both personally and through lobbying efforts, Breckenridge did all he could to improve education in Kentucky. He allowed folks training in the law as well as other students to use his own extensive personal library for their studies. Hmm. He also helped to fund a municipal library in Lexington and lobby for the establishment of an institution that was originally called Transylvania Seminary, but is now known as Transylvania University. He served on the Board of Trustees from 1793 until late 1797. He resigned in protest of an effort by some on the board and in the Kentucky General Assembly to force out the college's president. Now, with all this that we've talked about, I mean, he's involved. He's got his hands in so many things. Yeah, he's he's integral part of this community. And, you know, these are all things working in his favor legacy-wise. Like, 
working toward better education for the community, giving access to his library. I mean, these are things he did not have to do. And at the time, like that's just someone doing it out of the goodness of their heart, right? So it's uh, interesting, but good. But even with all that, you'd wonder how he could be involved in politics as well. (laughs) He was. Because Breckenridge, in less than a year after moving to Kentucky, was appointed to his first political office in that state. On December 19, 1793, Kentucky Governor Isaac Shelby appointed Breckenridge as the state attorney general. He was only the second person to hold that post. But it could have been a very short tenure for a couple of reasons. Because first, three weeks after he accepted the post of state attorney general, he was also offered the position as U.S. District Attorney for the District of Kentucky. He ended up declining that one. Okay. Nearly a year later, Democratic Republicans in Kentucky nominated Breckenridge to succeed Federalist John Edwards as U.S. Senator. So again, he just has all these offices coming to him. Right. He Well, and it makes sense, it, given what we just talked about a minute ago about how he's so influential in the community. You know, everyone's looking around being like, we need this political position filled. That guy right there is our guy. Yeah. So, and yeah, it's, um, let's just say, it doesn't sound like he saw his kids very much. I'll say that. <laughs> I, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, y'all just hang out on the, the 30,000 acres. You're good, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Just wander around in the woods for a while. Plenty of uh, people around to help raise those kids, I assume. (laughs) I'm sure. But in this, so even though he was nominated to become U.S. Senator, at this time, Federalists were still pretty prominent in Kentucky. And so even though he came in second on the first ballot in the Kentucky State Legislature, Federalist candidate Humphrey Marshall ended up getting the position on the second ballot. And so Breckenridge stayed in the attorney general post. He advised Governor Shelby on legal matters in the next few years. But in 1796, when it came time to choose the successor to Shelby as governor, the vote was split amongst four candidates. Though Baptist minister James Garrard came in second in the balloting, as no one candidate got a majority of votes, a runoff vote was held. And in the second round, the electors for the third place candidate shifted to Garrard, and he won. Now, the problem with this, I mean, that sounds sensible, right? Yeah. But the problem was that the Kentucky State Constitution did not specify that a majority of the votes were needed. Okay. And this is where, you know, we get to plurality versus majority. Majority, 50 plus one plurality, whoever's the highest vote getter. And Breckenridge, though not in an official capacity, expressed his belief that the top vote getter on that first ballot, Benjamin Logan, was the rightful governor. So this became a political controversy. It was put to the state Senate, you know, do y'all want to say something? Do you want to do something? Intervene? They declined. They were like, we're not touching (laughs) this. No. That's what I would have advised them to do. (laughs) We are not touching this. And so plans proceeded for Garrard to assume office. But because of his doubts of Garrard's legitimacy, Breckenridge resigned his post in protest on November 30th, 1797. 
Now, he wouldn't be out of public office long because a month later, he announced his candidacy for the state House of Representatives. So he's getting back in the political fold in an elected office. Yeah. Now, out of six candidates, Breckenridge won the election with 45% of the vote and assumed his seat in that legislative body. As a state representative, one of the first agenda items he took up was reforming the criminal code of the state to focus more on rehabilitation rather than punishment, which at the time, the death penalty was the sentence for over 200 crimes. Oh, Jesus. I know, right? Sorry. It's just like, like, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm surprised. Like, that's a lot. I'm sorry. Jaywalking. Yes, and it's <laughs> well. It's. It, I think it's also like we don't want to deal with it as a legal yeah. matter. Let's just be rid of that person, and then we don't have to think about it anymore. Which is a terrible way to look at it. But I'm yeah. I'm pleasantly surprised that someone in the 17, uh, well, the late 18th century in Breckenridge was talking about rehabilitation versus punishment. That seems awfully progressive for the time because. I mean, we're still struggling with that to this day, but for someone to bring it up back then is uh, interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. Exactly. And and you see kind of smatterings of this at the time, and it mm-hmm. becomes an increasing movement, but Breckenridge was definitely early on in this. And because of his efforts, you know, he he proposed that only first-degree murder should carry the death sentence, He introduced his revised code in January 1798, and the state legislature passed it a month later. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, he is. this is early on in his career in the state legislature, and so this is an early triumph and Mm -hmm. a very impactful one. But despite this, by May, Breckenridge's future in public service was imperiled due to his views on a major issue of the time. Now, after this debated gubernatorial election in 1796, there was a growing call in Kentucky for revising the state constitution. Breckenridge, though he had opposed the way Garrard had come to office, apparently had no problem with the state constitution and was concerned that a new state constitution might get the wacky idea to emancipate those enslaved in Kentucky. Oh, I know. Well, we can't have that, Jerry. Can't have that. So that's that's like the other edge of the sword for him. Is like he's doing these things, like he's helping progress education in his community. He's getting rid of the death penalty or or advocating at least for getting rid of the death penalty. And But then on the other side, he's fighting for the continued slavery in the country, which, yeah. which he wasn't alone at all in this time. But still, it's, it's just, it's just, Interesting how how those two like sides of the same person can be there. Yeah, and I, I think this will feed into our conversation at the end. You know, this is and it it really isn't just like with anything with people. It isn't black and white. I mean, there's yeah. there's good sides, folks, and there are, there are evil sides, folks. So yeah, so we have Breckenridge opposing a constitutional convention because of his fear of potential emancipation. Mm -hmm. And as he asserted, quote, where's the difference, whether I'm robbed of my horse by a highwayman or of my slave by a set of people 
calls a convention. Wow. If they can, by one experiment, emancipate our slaves, the same principle pursued will enable them at a second experiment to extinguish our land titles. Both are held by rights equally sound. John Breckenridge, I don't know, man. I was with you until now, but you lost me. You lost me here. Yeah. And there's more. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So his opposition to a new constitution caused him to only win re-election to a seat in the state house in May 1798 by eight votes. Wow. You know, at this point, it was a very popular issue. They wanted this new constitution. He opposed it. He nearly lost. He finally managed, you know, just barely to keep his seat. And despite Breckenridge's efforts in the legislative body, by late 1798, a new convention had been authorized for the next year. But before we get to that, we need to turn to what is arguably the most well-known part of Breckenridge's career, though the impetus for it began with a citizen of Virginia. So 1798 saw the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts by the U.S. government, which imposed restrictions on immigration as well as freedom of speech. Democratic Republicans across the nation, Breckenridge included, were furious about the passage of these acts, and the highest elected member of their faction, Vice President Thomas Jefferson, decided to take action. And thus he drafted what would come to be known as the Kentucky Resolutions, which protested the Alien and Sedition Acts and argued that the states could declare laws passed by the federal government to be unconstitutional, something that would come to be known as nullification, and would cause headaches for future presidential administrations down the line. Because that's something we're, that's still around, right? That's a, that's, that influence is still felt to this day, if I'm hearing it right. Yes. Yes, okay. And that's the thing, you know, that you know, we're still having this these discussions about what's federal authority, what's state authority, mm-hmm. where does that line lie? And yes, so this was in especially somebody that we're going to come to know quite well, heaven help us all, in the podcast, John C. Calhoun. He would take up this idea of nullification and would take it to an extreme and in this cause of preserving slavery. This is the roots of that. This is Jefferson, who is a revered figure in the American pantheon, so to speak, saying, well, if something's unconstitutional, the states can just say it's unconstitutional. We're not going to follow it. Now, Jefferson couldn't let it be known that he had actually drafted these resolutions, so he had to find someone in a state legislature which would enact them as an act of protest. Sorry, I was just chuckling because it's always political. Like, even back then, you got to find a scapegoat, right? (laughs) Exactly. And so Breckenridge had actually traveled to a resort at Sweet Springs in Virginia for his health that August, and somehow Jefferson got his resolutions to Breckenridge to introduce in the Kentucky State House. He returned to Kentucky, introduced them. He was appointed to a three-man commission to carry out Governor Garrard's request that the General Assembly declare its thoughts on the Alien and Sedition Acts. And so on November 10th, he and his committee brought forward the Kentucky Resolutions, 
mostly unchanged from Jefferson's draft, brought it to the floor of the House. Though Breckinridge had eliminated Jefferson's language about nullification, in the debate, he expressed his support for such a remedy if the federal government did not repeal the acts after a majority of states had expressed their disapproval. So even Breckinridge was saying, well, I don't know if I really want to go that far mm-hmm. unless, you know, let's make it conditional. Okay. If a majority of the states are saying that this is wrong, then we can say it's nullified. But just Kentucky alone can't say it's nullified. Okay, I got it. So Federalists in the state legislature worked against the resolutions. At this point, they were starting to wane. And ultimately, the resolutions were passed by both houses. The governor signed them. Now, a similar but less radical resolution, one without the mention of nullification, was drafted by former Representative James Madison and passed in the state of Virginia. But besides Kentucky and Virginia, this is where this protest ends. So it never got to that majority of the states. Mm. But for Breckinridge, this was a golden opportunity. It helped to raise his political profile in Kentucky. Right. And he needed that going into the state constitutional convention the next year. And he was actually even boosted further because he was elected as Speaker of the State House in 1799. Wow. So this new state constitutional convention, 58 men were chosen, one of which was Breckinridge. And out of 58 folks, 57 were people who enslaved other individuals. 57 out of 58. Am I hearing that right? Okay. Yes. So go ahead and prepare yourself for what's coming. <laughs> yeah, there's just, it's just unavoidable at this time period in this country, unfortunately. It's just, there's going to yeah. be a lot of slavery content. And so this new state constitution, Breckenridge worked with other conservative leaders in advance of the convention to ensure that the new constitution would serve their interests. So you definitely have the the ruling class here. When the convention began on July 22nd, 1799, the conservatives were off and put into place various measures, some directly crafted by Breckenridge, that were designed to ensure that the planner elite in the state would remain in power, including but not limited to strengthening safeguards of legal slavery, denying the right to vote to free blacks and mulattoes, instituting voice voting in the state legislature, which made it easier to intimidate legislators to vote in a certain way, and enhancing the hoops that would have to be gone through in order to amend the Constitution to ensure that the process was as laborious and difficult as possible. Man, this sounds like some of the recent voting legislation that's been passed or attempted to pass. It's crazy. It's like, so it's hard to look at any of that and be like, oh, I can see where they're coming from on this. It just seems so lopsided. And like, why can't a freed, I think you said like a former slave that's now free can still not vote. Is that right? And the thing was like, at, at that point, it, and and we see this in other states as well. It wasn't necessarily specified. This is when we start to get those laws that really crack down on free black individuals, on people of mixed race. This is when this is happening. It is because you know slavery in America is starting to expand again. We've got the cotton gin 
slavery is more profitable than it used to be. We also have the Haitian Revolution that is ongoing at this time. We have slave uprisings happening. So yeah. in 1800, you have Gabriel's Rebellion. You had some others. There's this increasing paranoia amongst the white planter class in America. Well, we've got to institute this system, codify it, and make sure that we remain in charge. Right. It's a, it's protecting themselves, really. It's fortifying their, yeah, their, their position. I understand. Yeah. I don't like it, but I get it. And that's the thing. Like, Breckenridge is an active participant, not only participant, but leader in this effort in Kentucky. Mm. Now, the conservatives didn't completely get their way because the indirect method of choosing the governor and state senators was abolished, and a measure to have judicial rulings subject to legislative approval failed. But the document that emerged was a much more conservative constitution than it had been previously, and Breckenridge was given a large amount of credit for its crafting. After the state constitution's ratification, Breckenridge was re-elected as Speaker of the State House in 1800, but he wouldn't remain in that office for long before his colleagues chose him for a higher post. Mm -hmm. In November 1800, the Kentucky General Assembly chose John Breckenridge to succeed the Federalist Humphrey Marshall in the U.S. Senate. So this speaks to, you know, Federalist power in the state is waning, Democratic Republicans are on the rise, and mm -hmm. Breckenridge is riding this wave. Yeah. Now, Breckenridge turned over several cases from his private legal practice over to an up-and-coming attorney named Henry Clay, who uh, will get his own episode in the special series, and yes. we'll be talking about much more as we go along. And in the latter part of 1801, Breckenridge made his way to Washington, D.C., there, he quickly became the Democratic-Republican floor leader in the Senate, and he had his work cut out for him because the party, though in the majority, only had a slim majority, which, again, the more things change. Yeah, the more things. Yep, yep, <laughs> exactly. And given the small size of the Senate at the time, a couple of defectors could make all the difference. So you needed that strong floor leader to keep folks in line. Yeah, and just a quick highlight here uh he uh, breckenridge is like late 30s early 40s at, at this time so i mean he's mm -hmm. he's done a lot in a short amount of time and his political career which began at age 20 uh i don't know just th there's there is an impressive element to that just how fast he rose through the ranks absolutely and and that's the thing and it also speaks to and again we can't fathom it with our large population. I mean, there are only certain people that you could draw on, but he really, he maximized his opportunities here. He, yes. you really see him as somebody who is taking every opportunity he can and making the best of it. And it's, mm -hmm. it's succeeding for him. You know, now he's a U.S. Senator and Right. One of the leaders in the Senate very early on. So, yeah. Yeah. And it seems like time and time again, he's selected by his peers for these yeah. leadership positions. He is able to get this confidence from others. They see him as somebody. Yeah, we need to put this guy forward. Exactly. And so 
he would use that in the Senate. One of the first big pushes they made was to repeal the Judicial Act of 1801, which had expanded the federal judiciary by creating new courts and judgeships the outgoing president, John Adams, had filled with Federalists. But when Breckinridge moved to bring it to a floor vote in early 1802, the Federalist senator from New Jersey, Jonathan Dayton, moved for it to be returned to committee. And with one Democratic-Republican siding with the Federalist, it ended up a tie. This shows just how narrow the majority was. Right. And Vice President Aaron Burr broke the tie by siding with the Federalists. So it went back to that committee. And that's where they wanted it to die. But Breckenridge and his supporters were brewing in their efforts by the return of a colleague who had been absent in the first vote. And with this new support, they were able to force a new vote. They were able to get it back to the floor. And by one vote on February 3rd, the Senate voted to repeal the Judicial Act of 1801. A month later, the House agreed and President Jefferson signed it into law. And we talked more about the ramifications of that repeal in the Jefferson presidency narrative series, but this was a big deal. This was reshaping the federal judiciary, and this was very early on in Democratic Republicans taking control of the federal government. So this was a big win, and Breckinridge was a big force in bringing that through. Yeah, absolutely. Now, getting to another of his efforts, and again, you see with Breckinridge, like time and again, there is this connection with Jefferson and helping to push the agenda for Jefferson. Now, we won't go into the details here, but the Louisiana Purchase had been negotiated in France by James Monroe and Robert Livingston, Mm -hmm. purchased what is now a third of the continuous United States for about $15 Now, when this deal arrived in the U.S., it seemed that the only opposition to be found to this deal was President Thomas Jefferson, (sighs) because Jefferson was concerned that the federal government didn't have the constitutional authority to purchase new land. And he wrote as such to Breckinridge on August 12, 1803, in which he included a draft constitutional amendment, which would give the federal government this authority. Breckinridge, pretty much like any other Democratic-Republican leader at the time, was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You're going to turn this down because of this? Yeah, and $15 seems like a steal. And I know know there's been hundreds of years of inflation, but even even with the inflation, that's a (laughs) heck of a deal, I think. Exactly. And Breckinridge had been working for decades on this. Numerous leaders in the west this is this was their dream yes we'll finally have the the mississippi river yeah do not give this up and so breckenridge went to work with a coalition of senators to push through the purchase and naturally it went through without a problem but after obtaining congressional approval jefferson then had to turn his mind to governing this new territory he sent over a draft of this new system to breckenridge and Fearing that Federalists in Congress would oppose any system that came from him, the president asked Breckinridge to put it forward in the Senate. To achieve this aim, Breckinridge put forward a motion for a committee to be established to recommend a plan for governing the Louisiana Purchase. So he's like, well, let's form this committee. And oh, by the way, I'm just going to leave this plan right (laughs) here on the committee table. Yeah. Uh, Just look it over. And if everybody's good... 
Say nothing. Okay, we're good. <laughs> Say nothing. Yeah. It, it's funny how like this massive world-changing purchase that I think you said it's like a third of the modern-day continuous U.S., like almost kind of flippantly or casually, it was kind of, well, what do we do now? You know? Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, yeah, history's funny. Exactly. And, and that's the thing is one of those things is just – what do we do with it now? Okay, well, we've got a plan. Does anybody have a better plan? No? Okay, let's nope. go. Yep. And so, naturally, put it forward, and it got approved by a vote of 26-6. Jefferson got his plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But with the presidential election coming up in 1804, Breckenridge was also instrumental in late 1803 in pushing through what became the 12th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which designated the electoral votes for president from those for the vice president. So basically before this, each elector just cast two votes, but it didn't say which vote was for the president and which one was for vice president. And in 1800, that ended up a mess when Jefferson and Burr, the presidential candidate and vice presidential candidate, got the same number of votes. Oh. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah, so this was trying to correct that. You're, you've got to designate, this is your vote for president, this is your vote for vice president. So Breckenridge, as the floor leader, he was involved in that. Now, Breckenridge had actually advocated for abolishing the Electoral College altogether. Didn't get that. I, 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 uh, <laughs> it's like, man, if we could rewrite history a little bit, right? And again, it's like we're still having these same conversations nowadays. I know, I know. Over 200 years have gone by and so much has happened. And yeah, we're still we're still talking about this same stuff. Yeah. And you really have to wonder if Breckenridge really thought, OK, 200 years from now, we're really going to have this. I mean, no, he was probably like, this is this is a this is a stupid idea. It's not going to last. Yeah. No. OK. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone in those times were thinking about 200 years in the future. No. But I get your point. But it ended up, he was like, okay, well, at least this is a good fix. He got behind it. He worked behind the scenes. He gave a last-minute speech on the floor. And he got it approved by a vote of 22 to 10 at 10 p.m. on December hmm. 2nd, 1803. And so this allowed the state legislatures to take it, approve it. And so it was in place for the election of 1804. Okay. Which was Jefferson versus who? So this was Jefferson versus Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Okay. And at that point, he actually changed his vice presidential candidates. Byrd fallen out of favor. George Clinton of New York was chosen as his running mate. But it ensured that they could cast an equal number of votes for Jefferson mm-hmm. and Clinton. It wouldn't have that same mess. Right. But... Clinton wasn't necessarily the shoe-in candidate because as early as July 1803, citizens from the Western states were actually pushing for Breckenridge to be nominated as Jefferson's vice presidential running mate. It seems like a natural fit given their history between Jefferson and Breckenridge. I'm kind of surprised that didn't happen, but you'll maybe tell me why. And in this case, it speaks to a that there wasn't as great of a population in the West at the time. The Mm. Eastern states were more populous, and so they had more folks. Whenever you came to the Democratic-Republican Congressional Caucus, 
But then also, this was a case where Breckenridge's young age worked against him. George Mm -hmm. Clinton was older. He was a more established politician. And thus, when the caucus met, they chose him with 67 votes over Breckenridge's 20 votes. Wow, that's a pretty firm victory for for Clinton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Breckenridge would be involved in a little bit of political controversy during this election. As an editorial signed, True American appeared in the June 29th issue of the Independent Gazetteer, which attacked Clinton as being too old to properly serve as vice president and proposed Breckenridge as an alternate candidate for electors to choose from. And we should say at the time, electors weren't necessarily guaranteed to any candidate. They could have written anybody's name on that slip of paper. So it was still possible for Breckenridge to come and stage a dark horse victory for the vice presidency. Okay, okay. But though he was accused by some as being the author of this editorial, Breckenridge quickly published a response on July 5th, urging electors to vote for the Jefferson Clinton ticket. He asked that all the newspapers that carried the True American editorial, they also print his response. So he came out pretty strongly, no, I'm not behind this. And so they were subsequently elected. There really wasn't much of a battle. The new term brought possibly one of the smallest cabinet reshuffles in presidential history because Jefferson only had one cabinet member that was looking to leave, Attorney General Levi Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just listened to the Levi Lincoln episode this week with Steve from the Speaksy Show, who I've also had on my podcast. So, yeah. Yeah, so this is, and, and that's a great connection. You know, this is when Lincoln was like, I'm getting older. I've served for four years. It's been great. And it's time to go. <laughs> Which is really <laughs> the way it should go. Like, I've done my four years. Let's move on to the next chapter. Exactly. And so Lincoln was all on board with that. And Jefferson actually had another cabinet member that was like, this whole attorney general thing sounds good. It sounds like a good deal. You know, it's a part-time position. Don't have to do mm-hmm. as much. And this was Secretary of the Navy, Robert Smith. And that position, and we'll talk more about that in Robert Smith's episode, it was a tough position, and especially in the Jefferson administration. And so you really get the sense Smith is like, this is going to be an easier position. Mm -hmm. This will be more of my speed. And Jefferson was on board with that. The problem was he wasn't able to find anybody to replace him at the Navy Department. And so he's like, sorry, Smith, you've got to stay there. It's going to be easier to fill this part-time attorney general position. Right. There are lots of lawyers. You can basically trip over a lawyer in Washington, <laughs> D.C. at this point. As I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The lawyers, they're uh, the cockroaches of the of the American working world. I don't know. But yeah, it's <laughs> is the attorney general is like the only quote unquote, part-time position in the cabinet at this time, yeah? So I have to assume it was a pretty coveted position because, like, you get the credit and the notoriety of being part of the presidential cabinet, but you're also not committing or uprooting your entire life to be a full-time cabinet member. Exactly. And, And the thing was, and we saw that with Levi Lincoln's episode, you know, he was able to still be back home in New England and still Mm -hmm. kind of do his thing. He was, it it was a position that he was able to 
you know, the 19th century equivalent of telecommuting. He was able to do it from yeah. afar. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I would never have thought that would have been a thing at that time, but it was. Yeah. Well, and, and especially like the attorney general position. And, you know, we've talked about this with the other, the other attorneys general. Yeah. It was really focused on being able to provide that insight to the administration. You know, anytime they had a legal question, they would turn to them. They could act as kind of this, this advisor on other matters, but really all they had to do was defend the federal government in cases before the Supreme court. Mm -hmm. That was their position. And so you just had to be there when the court was in session and they weren't in session all that often. So it really made it easier and they were able to maintain their own legal practice, deal with their own business. Right. It was a pretty good position. Sweet gig. Yeah. And so, you know, you have Robert Smith is like, yeah, sign me up for this. Can't find anybody for the Navy <laughs> Department. And so Jefferson returns to the list for Attorney General and Albert Gallatin, the Secretary of the Treasury, has suggested John Breckinridge. Breckinridge. And so he turned to him. Breckinridge agreed and resigned from his seat in the Senate on August 7th, 1805 to assume the post of attorney general. And so, like we've said, you know, this is a very limited position, but also this position as kind of a trusted advisor. And we saw this in the Lincoln episode. You know, it could act as kind of this unofficial advisor. And given that mm-hmm. Breckenridge had been so lockstep with Jefferson administration's agenda in the Senate, had been a leader there, you can see why he would want somebody like Breckenridge in this position yeah. because Lincoln had served as this advisor. Also, he would bring a unique perspective to the cabinet because this was the first cabinet member to come from west of the Appalachian Mountains. So this is the first time that a Westerner is being brought into the actual cabinet. Yeah, that's interesting. And Jefferson, of course, he was very interested in that westward expansion. Breckinridge would help him to understand what the needs were there and how the federal government could help to support that mm-hmm. westward expansion. And so Breckinridge arrived in Washington, D.C. to take up this new post on December 7th, 1805. The Senate confirmed his nomination on December 20th. And in his capacity of providing legal counsel to the administration, Breckenridge gave his opinion that federal property in the Orleans Territory could not be taxed by any local government there. It would take a while, but in 1819, this legal opinion was upheld by the Supreme Court in the case of McCullough v. Maryland. And speaking of the court, Breckenridge represented the federal government in six cases before the Supreme Court when its term began on February 12, 1806. Now, his track record wasn't really too good this term. He only won one case. He lost four. And one case was sent back to a lower court. So not starting out too strong there. No. Well, you know, I've known that Breckenridge has been a lawyer for a long, you know, since we started recording today. Uh, But we haven't really talked about his legal career to this point. So it's... I kind of feel like you buried the lead here that he's a terrible lawyer, apparently. <laughs> well, he was so busy with everything else, helping to promote yeah. education, helping to 
promote slavery. Impregnating his wife nine times. <laughs> Impregnating his wife nine times. Trying to get elected to office after office. Yeah. He didn't really have time to deal with that legal stuff. And he had so. the big move in there too. Exactly. Uh, or maybe you might have mentioned that. But I, yeah, it's it's a one out of four, or no, one out of five and losing four is not good for your yeah. first year as attorney general. Yeah. So not good. Not a good start. And as the court adjourned, Breckenridge returned home to Kentucky. Unfortunately, in June 1806, Breckenridge fell ill. Hmm. As was often done at the time, he traveled to Olympian Springs, which is a natural mineral springs, and it was thought to facilitate healing. Anytime you were under the weather, whatever condition, just go to the natural springs. It'll help. Was it? Where was that? The springs? Uh, the springs, I believe, were in Virginia. It was okay. in the mountains. They had quite a few natural springs in the area that folks would go to. And eventually this would become big resorts, but gotcha. So travel to these, it didn't help in October. He tried to ready himself to return to Washington, DC, but as his horse was being prepared for the journey, he collapsed in pain and was taken back home. Wow. He would never again leave Cabellsdale. And passed away there on December 14th, 1806, having just turned 46 a couple of weeks prior. So he did a lot in that 46 years. And it's kind of just feels like it ended with a whimper a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's And uh, based on when his tenure as attorney general started and when he fell ill, I think that's only like six months or so. So... Yeah. Yeah. It, it just kind of ended. It was a very short tenure. And, and again, like you, with his career, the fact that he was going from office to office, climbing and climbing, mm -hmm. you really have to wonder where he could have gone. Yeah. But just didn't happen. Well, and that's the problem with living in the early 1800s. You could die of every, everything's trying to kill you. Yeah. Uh, and you could die so easily. I'm reading on his Wikipedia, it was tuber tuberculosis, which was very common. So yeah, it's a, it's a shame in some ways, although he was pro-slavery, so maybe it was no big loss. And let's talk a little bit about his legacy before we start to analyze his life and career, because, you know, okay. like you said, his cause of death ultimately determined to be tuberculosis. According to one source I found, the family tradition is that his wife Polly was so distraught after his death that she cried so much that she ultimately went blind. <laughs> now, take that with a grain of salt. I take that with a giant grain of salt. <laughs> was she actually like proven to be blind at all? I could not find anything beyond that, but okay. that doesn't That doesn't pass the sniff test for me, Jerry. No. No. But apparently the family was like, yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> now, I have talked to people that have listened to tennis podcasts on repeat so much that they went deaf. <laughs> so maybe there is something to this. Maybe there is something to this. <laughs> so, you know, he was originally buried at his home a couple of days after his death. He was later reinterred at Lexington Cemetery in Lexington, Kentucky, where he's at now. He left his horse and mule breeding operations to his daughter, Mary Ann, and her husband, David. And they would continue this business 
They eventually built a house on the property, and it would come to be known as Castleton Farm from their last name, Castleman. The original property would change ownership several times, but this business, which is now known as Castleton Lions, has grown to be a well-renowned thoroughbred operation. So this continues to the present day. Wow. John's daughter, Letitia, after her husband, Alfred, died in 1808, remarried in 1816 to Peter Buell Porter, who served as Secretary of War under President John Quincy Adams. So he'll get his own episode in the series. All these people that is so much connections. It's like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. She's marrying a future cabinet member. It's just crazy. And just wait, there's more. Because John's son, Cabell Breckenridge, went on to become the Speaker of the Kentucky State House of Representatives and Secretary of State for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. His son and John's grandson, named John C. Breckenridge, would climb a bit higher politically than his father. He served in the U.S. House before being elected Vice President of the United States in 1856. Mm, Who was that under? If it sounds familiar, that was none other than James Buchanan as the president. So when the 1860 election came up, Breckenridge was the Southern Democrats candidate for president. And so this was the election that Lincoln ended up as president because the Democratic vote was split between Breckenridge and Mm. Stephen Douglas. And then there was a Whig candidate and then Lincoln and Lincoln was able to get past the post. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And after his term as vice president ended, this grandson, John, took his seat in the U.S. Senate. But after declaring his allegiance to the Confederacy, Breckenridge was expelled from that body. He served as a commander in the Confederate military before Jefferson Davis asked him to serve as the last Confederate Secretary of War in 1865. So you see, even in the family, this legacy that started with our Breckenridge in this defense of slavery being taken to the extreme by his grandson. All the way to the end. All the way to the bitter end of slavery. Exactly. With his grandson. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the only other point of legacy that we have to discuss with Breckenridge is something that happened during his lifetime because Breckenridge County, Kentucky was formed from part of Hardin County in 1799 and retains his name to this day. Yeah. So, Nick, that is the life of John Breckenridge. What are your initial thoughts? Uh, Yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this guy because... And I think this happens a lot with the Seat at the Table series just because of the time period we're in. But like the first half of his life, I'm like, this. I like this guy. He's a go-getter. He is uh, ambitious. He does not rest on his laurels. He's going from office to office. He's furthering the education of his local community. He's doing all this other stuff. But then the second half, it's like, well, he fought pretty hard to keep slavery a thing. And there were some other kind of things I questioned in there, too. So it's really a, a tale of two sides for me. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to talk about and score him here here in a minute because uh, I have mixed feelings. Yeah, exactly. And so let's go ahead and go into it. So our first round is the whole picture. And this looks at the overall career and character of this cabinet member. 
we can each award him up to 10 points. So let's start there. Let's, let's look at this whole picture of John Breckenridge. Have there been any, has there been anybody that scored a perfect 10 yet on this category? Good question. Let me look in this. It looks like the only person has been John Marshall. Okay. I just wanted like a reference point. I think this is a hard one because he did so much. He was a big ally of Jefferson, who's such an important figure in American history. He got stuff done for Jefferson. But his uh, if we're looking at his career as a cabinet member specifically, it was so short lived. He lost a lot of cases. I don't know. I can't I don't think I can go above five. And so just to say, so our next category focuses on his time in the cabinet. Yeah. So this is really looking at everything. Everything. And, yeah. Well, in that case, I'll go six. And that's the thing, you know, and there is, I, I think in the, when we get to the hot seat, the disgrace category, I think we're going to have, <laughs> A conversation and whatever we award here may end up being taken off. But this is somebody who, I mean, he achieved so much in a short amount of time. And, you know, you think about some of the other cabinet members that we've discussed, and we have folks that just kind of plotted along. But Breckenridge, you really get the sense he is all in. He is. Mm-hmm. He is really making things happen, and it's this vaulting career. Now, with that, it's cut short. You know, if yeah, Breckenridge would have gone on, who knows? I mean, this potentially could have been somebody to go for the presidency. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think totally. I could have seen him as a president. We know his grandson. Uh, was a candidate for president. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, too, you know, kind of rethinking my score, because even though you and I and many others, hopefully everybody, uh, doesn't agree with some of his positions that he took, especially on slavery, but other stuff, too. Objectively speaking, if you take emotion out of it, he was an effective politician at furthering the agenda he was working toward, even if we personally don't agree with it. Yeah. So I think that that has to count for something too. So, I mean, I might, I want to hear your score, but I, I put him at a six. I think I could go as high as seven. I think I'm going with a seven just because mm-hmm. I don't think he, he gets a full 10. And, and that point of John Marshall being the only person to date to get the, the full 20 points in this category, John Marshall's career, I mean, it was all the way through. You know, he mm-hmm. achieved so much, so many great things, but he lived until I think he was, I want to say he was in his 80s. If not, he was nearing 80. He lived a long life mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. achieved so much. Breckenridge, unfortunately, for this category, you know, he fell short because he died. He gave up the ghost. Yeah. yeah. But in that time, the fact that he achieved what he did, I think, you know, he he gets some high marks here. So yeah. seven seems like a good one for me. 
Yeah, I think seven. I'm going to go with you on seven. So call it seven and seven. So that gets him 14 in this category. And then we go to the go-getter round. So this looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And we can award up to 10 points each in this round as well. I would be very surprised if you said we should give him 10. (laughs) (laughs) 11, Jerry. Because... Those six months that he served were just the best six months in American history. Uh, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, I kind of said it before. Like he, he achieved so much in his life, but he went out with a whimper. That those cabinet, that cabinet year. I think he was technically in there for a year. Yeah. Um, although ill for half of that, uh, was just not very remarkable, and he had a lot of failures in that time. Um, I don't know. I mean, is two too low? Three? Something like that? And that's the problem here. There's just, there's so, and it's in part because of this part-time nature of the, the attorney general position at the time. He really didn't have an opportunity to do much. You know, of course he was corresponding with Jefferson, giving opinions, things like that. Mm -hmm. But he really didn't have the chance to do much. He really wasn't in DC that long. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I'm thinking a one. <laughs> yeah, you might be right. And like you said earlier, like I think the sky was the limit for this guy if he had just lived long enough, but he, he didn't, we have to work yeah. with what actually happened, not what potentially could have happened. So yeah. I, I think a one is fair. Um, I'll stick with a two. Um, just because he seemed like a trusted, well, he didn't seem, he was a trusted ally of yeah. Thomas Jefferson. And even though the tenure was short, I'm sure Jefferson leaned on him a lot for advice. So that counts for something. So I think a two is my score. All righty. So Breckenridge is now at 17 points. Okay. But now we get to the hot seat round which is where we discuss any disgraceful behavior of and <laughs> actions committed by the cabinet member. And this disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And I think pretty much everything that we're going to be talking about with Breckenridge is outside of that cabinet tenure. Yeah. But we will be subtracting points and we can subtract up to 10 points each. Wow. Well, we, we've kind of said it. A lot here, but he had some really strong negative stances on slavery. He fought hard to keep slavery a thing. He owned, uh, I think I saw on his Wikipedia, like up to 70 slaves at the time of his mm. death, something something in those in that room. And I don't know, his. he had nine kids and one of them turned out to be a real a-hole too as the vice president, <laughs> confederate, you know, all that stuff. So he has 17 points, right? Um, he does. I don't know. Do we? I don't know. feels like we should take away a few, although I was already kind of considering some of this stuff in my low scores before. And that's the thing. And, you know, just like I've talked about with other guests, you know, and we're going to be unfortunately talking about many cabinet members who enslaved individuals. There's no... There's no quantifying the the horrors and evil of slavery. You know, right. No amount of points quantifies that. And 
So in that, you know, of course, that is going to factor into the score and also thinking of other points of disgrace, you know, I think, and it does, he had certain points as we discussed earlier, you know, he was progressive in certain ways, you know, trying to promote education for certain people, trying to make punishment more about yeah the whole death penalty thing that was huge less less about punishment and more about rehabilitation Rehabilitation. so that's that's very progressive and that's that's very unusual for the time and and in a more progressive stance but his work in the the state constitutional convention that was just and it, it was it wasn't unusual for people of from his standpoint and from his background at the time, but it also, and I think that's one of the things that, that people struggle with in history. And I think people struggle with, with people in the modern era that, you know, how can you think this and think this thing that just seems completely, it doesn't seem like it should work together but it does it exists in this person people are complicated people are strange as the door said uh you're right all that yeah you you summed it up really well i feel like we have to take some points away oh yes um just a matter of how many how many points are you going to take away i'm really debating because we have him actively trying to make things harder, not just for enslaved individuals, but also free black people, free black people, people of mixed race. And this is, this is one that it gets to, and and I'm thinking back to the Thomas Jefferson episode. I mean, this was, this was definitely more of an active racism, discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. There's not really much else in his career besides this, but this is a big deal. I'm almost thinking a six. Taking away six? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a big one. It's a big one. I was thinking somewhere around five, so we're not too far off. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's on the wrong side of history for sure as far as yeah. that part of his legacy. I'll stick with five. I mean, you'll you'll do six. I'll do six. So okay. we're taking away eleven, and that puts him at six points. Not too good. <laughs> Not too good right now. So we still do have an opportunity for him to get some more points because mm-hmm. now we're getting to tenure of office, which the entire time that that the cabinet member served in a full time capacity. He, as you said, did not. not- not yeah. long. Um, he served and Jefferson appointed him on August 7th, 1805. He passed away on December 14th, 1806. Just over a year. Rounding that gets him one extra point. We do have our bonus points that folks can earn. Unfortunately, John Breckenridge does not meet the category for any of those because he only served in the one cabinet post. He only served in the Jefferson administration. And though he possibly could have, if he would have lived, he did not become president. 
So that means we are finishing up John Breckenridge with seven points. Wow. When we started this episode, I really would not have guessed that he'd be so low. Is that, that's got to be among the lowest scores you've gotten so far, right? This is definitely one of the lowest scores. We've, let's see, is there anybody? William Bradford, who was one of his predecessors as attorney general, scored nine points. So Breckenridge is now at the bottom of the pack. The bo- it seems fitting that I could come on here for the first time and be on your worst <laughs> cabinet member episode. Something very poetic about that, Jerry. We we need to do a, a tennis list of <laughs> what were what were the the least impactful cabinet members. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know who number one is. It's this guy. (laughs) But I'm going to surprise you because despite everything we've said, he definitely belongs at seat at the table. I'm joking. He does not. (laughs) I was about to say, because we're getting to that question. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I would have been willing to listen to an argument. No. Spoiler (laughs) on my thoughts. But yeah, he does not belong at that table. Well, and, and that's the thing. And again, unfortunately... For John Breckenridge, just he didn't have an opportunity to. He was in a position that already was a part time position, didn't have much opportunity. The attorney generals they they struggled at this point to really prove their worth that they that they should get this position, but Breckenridge just didn't have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so so many questions about what he would have done further in life, um, but he had to go and get tuberculosis. Uh, but yeah. at least he didn't die from drinking bad milk on a hot summer day like, I think it was John Tyler, right? Uh, or James Polk? The milk on a hot day, that was actually uh, Zachary Taylor. Yeah. Zachary Taylor. That sounds right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and he died like in the first month of presidency, right? Something like that. So that was William Henry Harrison. <laughs> okay. I'm Taylor... sorry. I'm confusing everybody. <laughs> well, they both were older presidents and they both died. And it's speculated that it's because of that tainted water supply. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of, some of those presidents with like the the ones that everyone forgets, like those few that you just mentioned, like they all kind of run together for me. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Mr. Uh, Breckenridge did not have any bad milk that we know of, but he did die young. And because of that, his legacy is only what it is. And that is a lowly seven out of a possible, I don't know how much, but a lot more than seven. Oh, yeah. Much more than seven. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but Nick, I hope that you've enjoyed learning about John Breckenridge that this is, you know, it's one of the things with the cabinet members that aren't as well known. I think there are still valuable lessons in their lives and their careers. And especially with Breckenridge, you see somebody who is a complex individual and it really speaks to how complex people are in general, you know, that, that there's, Mm -hmm. There's not this clear black and white. This isn't, there isn't this clear, you're either good or evil. Breckenridge did some great good. He also helped perpetuate some 
pretty awful evil. Yeah, he is a really textbook example of what you're saying about it's not all black and white. Like yeah. he is a he's a really good example that you could point to with that because uh, I was torn on some of this stuff on some of these scoring because of that. But yeah, he, he was a product of his time for sure. But he he was always busy. Let's leave it at that. Oh yes, he was. Even though we didn't score him much in the go get around in his life, he was definitely a go getter. So yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Nick, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I cannot thank you enough for this conversation, for your friendship. And I cannot recommend the Tennis Podcast enough. Like I said, it is on my regular rotation, and I hope it will be on yours as well if it's not already. So, Nick, thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, Jerry. This was a blast, and I'd love to have you back on my show, and I'd love to come back on here anytime. You just let me know. Absolutely. 2023 is just around the corner. So <laughs> I think right. we need to make that happen. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another and take care, dear friends. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.